Welcome to the Period Story Podcast, the podcast where we get behind some of the myths and misconceptions about periods. We chat with women about their period story, their first period, their journey ever since, and we open up a conversation to help break taboos and stigmas around menstruation. I'm your host, Lenise Brothers. I'm a yoga teacher and registered nutritionist specializing in women's health, hormones, and the menstrual cycle. I'm also the author of You Can Have a Better Period, the book Publishers Weekly calls an empowering debut, an informative, refreshing take on women's health. It's available from Amazon, Bookshop, and anywhere else you purchase books. Welcome to today's guest. On today's show, I'm so pleased to be speaking to Erin Holt. Erin is a board-certified integrative and functional nutritionist with a feisty attitude and over a decade of clinical experience. She blends evidence-based practices, functional lab testing, energy medicine, boundary setting, and humor for a unique and customized approach to women's health. She dives deep with women to get to the root cause of their health issues and finally gets answers to their mystery symptoms. A quick note on today's show, we recorded this early last year, so please check Erin's website for her most up-to-date programs and courses. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited for you to meet Erin Holt on today's episode. Um, So yes, enjoy the show. And let's start off with a question that I always ask my guests, which is tell me the story of your, your first period. Okay. So this is really not something that I've thought a lot about. Um, So when you sent over the, the questions ahead of time, or just, you know, things to ponder for this show, it really, really made me think, and not just about the, the actual story, but sort of the whys behind it. And what did that tell me? And so Um, I just want to say that this is really the first time that I've thought about this, but I got my period when I was in sixth grade and, um, you can tell that I'm like a kid of like the eighties and nineties, because in sixth grade, we just like would walk to our friend's house after school, like no parental supervision, no, like nothing. I have a first grader and the thought of her doing that in five years, like I would never, I would never. (laughs) So I was at my friend's house. It was a boy's house. And there was just a bunch of us there watching MTV back when they actually had music videos. And, um, I remember having to put on a pair of his sweatpants because it was very muddy out. So I was wearing his pants at a boy's house with my friends and I got my period. So it luckily it wasn't like a big, huge thing. I was able to go home. But what happened when I went home is I told my mom and she asked me, were you having sex over there? I'm in sixth grade. I'm 12 years old at this point, maybe even 11. And I, so right out of the gate, I got this impression or this message that this is wrong, right? This, what just happened to you is actually like, because you did something, you potentially did something bad and holy smokes. Now my mom, I have to say, she had me really young, but we were really open. She was hip. You know, she, that was, I think that kind of just came from a place of like fear and like nervousness within herself. And probably if she could go back in time, she probably would have done it a little differently, but that, that is really my takeaway from the first time I got my period was feeling like, Oh, this, this is something bad that, that happened. So when you got your period at your friend's house, what did you do? Like you actually like in the moment you were wearing his sweatpants. So like for the Brits listening, like uh, they're like just sweat, sweat bottoms, tracky bottoms. Um, 
and then you felt like you, you felt your period come. What did you do? Like take us through that actual time at your friend's house. I didn't feel it. I went to the bathroom and noticed like, oh my gosh, this is something. And of course I said nothing. I didn't say anything to anybody. I was like, oh my God, I could, I just got to get home as fast as possible. My mom has to come pick me up. I got to get out of there because how mortifying to get your first period at a boy's house while you're So it wasn't a very, you know, there wasn't much of a story to tell because I just hightailed it out of there after that. And did you know what it was? I did. I did know. I did know what it was. And I'm trying to think of how I knew because I had not really had a conversation about this is going to happen and here's what we do. I mean, my mom got her period. And like I said, she was really open. So I I was unaware of what menstruation was, what it looked like all of that. But as far as, so I knew what it was, but I, I didn't know, like, where do you go from here? And so then you got home, your mom asked you that question, which she said of, that she probably regrets. And then what did you do? Like, did she give you pads? Did she give you tampons? No, I, well, she gave me, we got pads. I remember that, but we, um, I spent the summer times with my, with my grandparents and, I remember the very first time I had to use a tampon because my mom hadn't taught me how to use a tampon. She got me pads and that was sort of it. And, um, the summer, like I said, we were with my grandparents. I was meeting my friends at a water slide and I got my period. So I'm like, Oh, I have to figure this out. I have to figure this out like really fast. <laughs> how do I use a tampon? Cause I can't go in a bathing suit on a water slide with a pad. And so I remember, I totally remember the exact bathroom I was in. I remember it was so uncomfortable. I had no idea what I was doing, but I just went for it and figured out how to use a tampon (laughs) for my bathing suit. But I, there was no guidance. There was nobody walking me through the steps. And in fact, I, um, when I was the first one in the group to get my, you know, in my group of girlfriends to get my period. And so when another one of my friends got it and wanted to start using tampons, I was the one that had to teach her. And I taught her by drawing a diagram because that was easier than actually like teaching, you know, like going into the bathroom with her. So I, I drew a diagram and then gave her the notebook. I remember the journal that she wrote it in and she took it in and figured out how to do it because we really just didn't have parents swooping in saying, okay, here's what's going to happen. Here's the next steps. Here's how to use this. It was like a total, like a magical mystery tour. And so you became the kind of educator in your group of friends. So then after you figured out how to use a tampon at that, you know, the moment at oh, the water slide, how did you then further kind of learn about what was happening to your body? Well, I'm 37 in two days and I'm just now learning about it. So (laughs) if that gives you any, any insight, I I didn't, I mean, of course we had like uh, one course in, in like middle school, you know, like talking about the birds and the bees type of vibe. But outside of that, there really wasn't any um, education around why this is happening, like the actual physiological reason it's happening, um, what to expect, what the different phases of your cycle might mean, what's normal, what's not normal. I'm pretty fortunate in that I um, I haven't really, I've had, dealt with a lot of health issues, but none of them really 
I didn't, I've never had really hard periods. Let's, let's just say that. And so I just kind of like went, went through the motions really. So then you kind of big, kind of figured it out on your own and then you never had any hard periods. So no period pain, heavy period or any other issues with your menstrual cycle. The, I was, I did battle um, eating disorders for over a decade. And so there was a time when um, I was in my early teens and I had lost a really significant amount of weight. Um, I was overtraining, under eating, significantly restricting my food source. And I lost my cycle for a while and didn't even know that that was, and for a while, I would say under a year, not, you know, not several years, but I didn't know that was a problem. I didn't communicate that to people knowing what I know now, looking back, I was like, oh my goodness, that was a big deal, but had no idea that, that, that was a thing. And like I said, didn't, didn't even talk about it to never told anybody, Hmm. but outside of that, no, I didn't have really horrible cramping or heavy bleeds or big issues surrounding menstruation. Yeah. It's interesting what you say. Um, as a student athlete, when you lost your period, I I spoke to someone else on the show um, last year, and she was saying that something happened to her, the similar thing happened to her. And she was actually really happy when she lost her period, because her and her friends, they always saw their period as a hassle as, as athletes. And um, that was a kind of kind of common theme throughout high school and university for her doing sports period was having a period was always a hassle if you think about you as a student athlete and then your friends who've also played sports did you you said that you didn't notice that you lost your period but did you were you getting any other messages if you think back about it around periods being a bit of a hassle as an athlete Totally. And so let me just clarify that I wasn't an athlete. I, it was like self-inflicted. So I ran a lot. Um, I, I, I joke, if my husband could hear you call me an athlete, it would be like the joke of the the week. Um, but so I wasn't really in the, the athletic group, so can't really speak to that. Uh, but I absolutely got the message that a period is, it's not something to revere, right? It's something it's, it's our cross to bear. It's this thing that is kind of cloaked in shame. You don't really discuss it with anybody. It's embarrassing when it happens. And yeah, it would be, it's a great thing to not have to deal with it. Like I said, like not having a period, I was never like, oh, something, something is off here. I was like, cool. You know, <laughs> like one <laughs> less thing to have to deal with in this, you know, crazy body of mine. Mm. If you think back to how you learned about your period and or, or you're still learning about your period and your menstrual cycle, what can you take from that into the way that you'll, you'll teach your daughter when she eventually gets her period? Well, there's going to be a conversation leading up to it first and foremost. And so we even have conversations now because she sees, you know, we're I'm definitely an, an open parent. Um, 
And so she sees the fact that I menstruate every month and we have conversations about that. And um, so there'll be more conversation leading up to it. But what I really hope to instill in her is this appreciation for what her body's actually doing every single month, Um, because it, it took me well into adulthood for me to understand that. And if she can go into it, understanding that this is more of a superpower than it is a cross to bear. I feel like what a gift and mm. my, my, my um, job will be well done. If she, if she can, if she can take that away from it. So you mentioned it to see it as a superpower. What does that mean for you? Well, just the, the miracle that our body essentially, you know, creates a new gland every month. I mean, I think as, as this is a generalization, but as a woman, I've been extremely hard on myself and on my body. And I tend to look for the broken places and I tend to look for the places that aren't meeting some, you know, arbitrary ideal. And I tend to beat myself up for all of those places And, you know, the more I study the human body, the more I work with a lot more women, the more I'm like, oh my God, this body truly is a miracle in what it can do every single day, every single week, every single month over and over and over again. So this, the fact that this was a big aha moment, the fact that we're just creating these things within our body every month is, is so magnificent. Um, And then once we can really get in touch with the phases of our cycle and understand that they each hold a purpose, like a really big, significant purpose is, is huge. Um, I think that for me, understanding the luteal cycle and what's happening there was a really big eye opener for me because I tend to be my, my husband calls it my outrageous temper. (laughs) I tend to, I have a, I'm a hot tempered person. Right. And I beat myself up for that a lot. Like, why am I like this? What's wrong with me? You know, why is this happening? And understanding that there's, you know, we become so much more discerning in the the week or the weeks leading up to our menstruation that we're able to look around and assess, hey, what in my life isn't working? You know, what's not really like feeding my soul anymore? Hmm. Being able to understand that and harness that, that's not a problem. I'm not a, I'm not a, bitch. I'm not broken. I'm not awful. It's just that I, I'm more in tune to different aspects of my life. And to me that that's a real gift. And if we can, if we can just teach women that versus telling them why they're so awful all the time, you know, I think that just creates such a different environment. Mm. And have, have these learnings that you've gained about how you behave differently or think differently in different parts of your cycle? Have you taken those into the way that you work and the way that you run your business? Um, I won't say that I've gotten to the point where I create my schedule around different parts of my cycle. However, I give myself a lot more grace um, around how I interact with people. Um, I understand that, you know, in the follicular phase, I really enjoy interacting with people. Um, and I have a lot more patience for folks. Whereas on the, in the other half of my cycle, not so much, I tend to be a lot more, more introverted and communicating with people feels like a lot 
for me energetically. And so I think this really applies, especially to social media Mm -hmm. and my interactions on social media on that, on, you know, Instagram is the one I, where I spend my most time. So whether it's DMS or interacting with people that way, um, I give myself a lot of grace because I would get really frustrated Mm -hmm. that I felt like people needed me all of the time and were asking so much of me. And now I just understand that like, there are times in my, in my, in the month where I'm, I'm excited about that. And then there are times in my, in the month where I am not. And so that I would say is how I've harnessed that the most in my work currently. I I really love that because you, you saying that I have never thought about it, but that actually is connected a lot with me. There will be times where I see like you, I get a ton of DMS and there are times where I'm just like, why, why are you DMing me? And then even though I say DM me, like, you know, (laughs) Uh, and then other times I'll just be tip tapping away. I love responding. And I never really thought about it like that. Um, But I actually want to ask you that now that we're talking about social media, I love what you say about boundaries um, on social media, can you share your stance on boundaries for listeners who may not be familiar with you and or, or don't follow you on Instagram? Oh my goodness, of course. I am boundaries are is one of my most favorite things to talk about. And I view boundaries as a form of self-care. And self-care is a term that I don't really vibe with. I don't really align with that term, but it's a good catch-all term. People know what you mean when you say it. And um, I work with a lot of women in my in my work who are um, really struggling with some chronic stuff. It might be GI, it might be ongoing hormones, it might be just utter extreme burnout, autoimmunity. And what I've found over the years is that so much of it comes from our inability to to set and hold boundaries, whether that's in our life with our family or in-laws or friends or our work. It's, you know, I think again, generalization, but a lot of us are brought up to believe that we have to be the peacekeepers, Hmm. that we have to walk into a room and make sure everybody's comfortable. It's we're responsible for everybody else's comfort level above our own. And we've been taught this lie that if we start to take a step forward and say, Hey, I matter though, right? My, my energy matters, my health matters, then we're selfish. Mm. Right. And so, and I, I, the more I talk about, about boundaries publicly, the more I get gaslit into thinking that like, Oh, well, you're just selfish or you're greedy or you're money hungry, or you don't care enough about people. And and so this happens like this, you know, our society teaches us that in, in, doubles down on that message often and frequently. And so I get why people are nervous to step forward and create boundaries, but it is arguably one of the most important things that we can do. I joke that like boundaries is my favorite adaptogen you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, um, because all it's doing is saying, I need to take care of my energy, right? We are walking around burnt out, strung out, exhausted, like dragon limbs all over the place, just really, really, really tired. And 
what nobody is going to like swoop in and give you an extra few hours of the day to take care of yourself. That will literally never happen. And if it did happen, I'm sure you'd be really good about filling up that space with doing things for other people anyway. Right. So we have to kind of stake a claim on our own lives and say, here's in like evaluate our energy and be radically honest with energy leaks. Like, where's my energy going? And does that feel good to me? And if it doesn't, that's where we have to create a boundary. That's where we have to say, I'm unwilling to do this. And I think it's really challenging when it's something that we used to be available for and to all of a sudden say, I am no longer available for this. You know, we can use DMs as an example. Maybe now you're saying, DM me, I love it. I love to chat on DMs. And then perhaps your business might shift and restructure to the point where you can no longer DM people back and forth all day. And so you would have to create a boundary and say, I used to be available for this. I am no longer available for this because I took stock of my energy and I realized that it doesn't feel good any longer to do that, or I don't have the bandwidth for it. And so I think a boundary boundaries is, is a must. I think we're hearing a lot more about them and I'm really glad for that because it's hard. I think it's, it's very hard to have a good handle on mental health, emotional health, and physical health. If you are unable to create boundaries in your life. Hmm. I I am just nodding along with what you're saying because I'm a big believer in boundaries. I like I don't like it when people behave in an unboundaried way and I always push back against that. I mean, and I think social media is because you have access to so many people or you feel like you have access to so many people because you can just send them a message it makes people feel like, well, you, I have access to you all the time, so I can just send you what I want. But And people don't necessarily think before it. they send you, you know, they're like whole page long um, health issue. And I love it that people feel open and able to share that. But I think there's a kind of energetic exchange that happens. And what I love about what you said is it relates quite nicely to like people who work in healing professions. There is a boundary issue that happens because you are giving so much of yourself when you're working with people. And there is a kind of, it's, it's a challenge to be able to say no, because you're so used to giving and giving and giving. And that's certainly something that I've learned in my time as a practitioner that I have to have boundaries. Like I don't let people contact me on certain platforms anymore. I just, I don't like it. And I need to have my own space to be able to know that I can be there as Lenise brothers, a person rather than Lenise brothers, the practitioner. So yeah, that's kind of, I'm really connecting with what you're saying. I think that social media can be the biggest boundary breach if we let it, because to your point, we've created this, this false expectation that people should be entitled to our time, our expertise, our brain, our energy at any moment in the day. And so I do think there has to be a little bit of a resistance and a little bit of a kickback because at the end of the day, we're all human beings with a finite energy source. Many of us have families, 
and other obligations outside of, of the app. And we show up because we like to interact. We like to create content. We like to help people. But I think what also some people fail to understand is that a lot of that, especially for, for practitioners, is that, that a lot of that is content marketing. Mm. So we're willing to show up and to give in the hopes that that message will resonate with somebody and then they'll end up working with us because there has to be a monetary exchange. I am the primary provider for my family. So if I don't get paid, the lights don't go on, right? I don't have internet to provide free content, right? We don't eat. So I have to get paid. And that is a boundary in and of itself is that like that that energy exchange of receiving compensation for the energy that I put out in the world. And we have to we have to understand that too. And a big thing that I get asked a lot by other business owners are like, aren't you so afraid to set boundaries on, you know, publicly like you do? Like, aren't you afraid you're going to lose clients? A lot of people are afraid to say no because they, they, they need clients, right? Understandably. But I look at it a completely different way because if somebody is going to overstep my boundaries on a, on a free platform, then they're surely going to do it when they're a paying client, surely. And so I almost use it as like a screening tool to assess who, who is a good fit for me um, in terms like, you know, who can w- work with me? If you can't respect me here, then you don't get past this checkpoint. Mm. You don't get access to, to my one-on-one work. And I, it has been really quite tremendous and helpful for to, to, to hone you know, my clientele, because by the time somebody's paying to work with me, they're so respectful. They're so understanding of my boundaries. They're so respectful of them that I love the work that I do. And I'm not hitting that, that burnout that so many of us practitioners or business owners hit when we're just saying yes to everybody. Mm. So someone's listening to this and they're thinking, yes, I just have a huge issue with boundaries, whether they're a practitioner or whether they're just a person in this world. What was what would one tip for them to start with? What would that one tip be? I, I think it's putting the responsibility on yourself mm. to understand because it's hard to know where where we need to set boundaries if we don't if we don't know what's triggering us. So really, really pay attention to those trigger moments. You know, and when I what, for me when I get triggered, I get like really hot. Like I physically feel a sensation in my body where I'm like, I have to get up and like pace my house sometimes, just like walk around because I get this like big visceral sensation. So I would like understand what your kind of trigger, you know, uh, clues are, and then really think about what's happening in this moment in time. And then is there a pattern here? Does this happen every single time X, Y, Z happens? I think pulling it in, if you are somebody who menstruates and has a cycle, pulling it into that luteal phase, because again, we're going to be a lot more attenuated to like, oh, these are the things that are driving me nuts, you know, (laughs) and maybe kind of, you know, utilize that. I always say, and I'm sure you say the same, like that, that period is not the best or that phase of the cycle is not the best time to act on your decisions. Like if you, if you have clarity, you don't necessarily have to take action because at least for me, that action is usually a little too aggro, (laughs) Um, but you can pull it into your menstruation and like, think about it, meditate on it, come from a clear headed spot. But that, that I think is the very first step is to pay attention to where you get bothered 
And rather than say, oh, there's something wrong with me for getting bothered. Like, why am I like this? Why do we react this way? Use it as information because there's probably a boundary that needs to be set. Hmm. And this actually segs nicely into this, you're talking about tuning in and understanding what you need a bit more. It tunes, it segs nicely into what I wanted to talk about uh, around your work and intuitive eating. And on your website, you talk about ditching diet dogma. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means? So ditching diet dogma. So I want to first say, because I, I'm transparency and integrity are like the two bedrocks of my business. And so with, there's a lot of intuitive eating terminology being thrown around. I do not have not received training in intuitive eating. And I just say that because that is a trademarked um, framework, right? So I don't want to like co-opt that or, you know, make it sound like I, I'm, I, I'm doing something that I'm not doing. Um, I, in my eating disorder recovery, intuitive eating came into play and I did work with a registered dietitian who is trained in intuitive eating. So I've had exposure to it. Um, ditching the diet dogma means stop living as though your diet is your religion, right? We can get, you know, tribalism is so huge right now. We can see it play out in politics, you know, especially here in the U S pretty keenly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also infiltrated so many other systems like our food, right? And so we have different camps. We've got the paleo, we've got the keto, we've got the intermittent fasters, we've got the vegan, the plant-based diet. We, you know, there's so many different camps and everybody's shouting from the rooftops why this is the one way. This is the end all be all. This is the thing to finally fix your broken pieces to finally save you. And so we can get really locked into that. And I just see it do such a massive disservice long-term to be so locked in and so rigid. And it's like, you know, I, I recently said, it's like when, when your food plan, your way of eating becomes more like religion, right? More like, like doctrine than that usually creates problems in the long run because there's no wiggle room for you to say, Oh geez, this isn't working for me anymore. Mm. There's no space for your intuition to come through and say, you know what, this, this actually doesn't feel good in my body. Right. So I would say that ditching the diet dogma is more about embracing the idea because this is a lot easier said than done, but embracing the idea that our own body's communication and our own intuition should guide the way that we eat versus somebody else's set of rules. Mm. Now, I know we, we talked a little bit about this over, over DM and you have recently in release a very interesting podcast episode about intuitive eating, intuitive fasting, where you, you position this as a position as an opinion piece. But I just want to go back to what you just said about um, tuning in and understanding your intuition. What would you say to someone who says, well, I don't even know what the word intuition means. Like what, how I don't get, I don't connect. I know that this is something I need to ditch diet dogma, but I don't get that. That is a really, really good question because that is, that's sort of my, the rub for me with any type type of intuitive eating approach, whether it's the trademarked intuitive eating or something similar, because we can't just turn on our intuition 
when it comes to food. You don't just walk into the kitchen, open the cupboard and say, my intuition's on now. It is really something that we have to practice throughout our entire, the rest of our life, not just with food. And so where do you begin? I mean, what is intuition? It's like the sort of like the quiet whispers that you might hear that you're like, that that can't be real. Or even like the gut sense that you've got. What I always say is like, has there ever been a time where you just knew something? You didn't know how you knew it. You just knew it and you acted on it. And looking back, you were like, oh my gosh, thank God I listened to that. That, you know, that, that was a big thing. That's your intuition speaking to you. And where does it come from? I don't know. I think it probably depends on what kind of spirituality or philosophy or religion you align with. Um, so I won't go there, but it's coming from, it's either your higher self or it's coming from something bigger than you. And I think that the only way that we can access this is by creating space to do it. Like having the the desire and the willingness to say, you know what, I really want to, really want to check in with my intuition. I really want to figure out, you know, what these messages mean or where they could, could be coming from. And I think we have to practice it. And I think we have to create space for it. I call it like mental white space. Almost if, if our heads and our bodies and our days are so filled up to the brim with stuff, with noise, with information all day, every day, there's really not a whole lot of space for your intuition to come in, right? Where's it? What's the, what's the entry point. And so I think that's why having a meditation practice or having a mindful practice can be really good because it creates that white space in your day. Mm. Now for some people to just sit down, you know, quietly for 10 minutes to listen to their intuition, it's not going to happen. It's like being hit by a Mack truck all of a sudden, you know, you're going, 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 going. And then they sit down, they're like, I got to get out of here. I can't do this. Right. So I also think that we can access it. One of the ways that I do it is through nature we live in the woods. So I will go, I call it my forest medicine. I will just go into the woods. I think nature has this ability to connect us to something bigger than ourselves. It's that, that sense of awe, that sense of wonder that we've sort of been disconnected from. I think we all have it as children and then we move away from it, the older we get, but you go into a wide open space of nature, whether it's green space or blue space, and you just see And you're able to feel into this sense that there's something bigger than me. It doesn't make all your problems go away, but it kind of gives you perspective on your problems a little bit. And for me, that creates a little bit of a pocket in my day, a quiet moment, you know, a pause, if you will, from all of the noise and the chatter. And I find that my, I can connect with my intuition really really well there. But I think we all have to find what works best for us, but it really is about one, being willing to, and two, creating a pocket of time for yourself to listen. I think what you're saying is so interesting. And it reminds me of uh, one of my yoga teachers. She would always say that you need to listen to the whispers before they become screams. And if you take that principle beyond the physical body, when you're doing kind of asana or movement to kind of what's happening internally and related to your hunger and what your, what your, what your body needs. It's really interesting. And it's almost like a muscle that you have to build. But if you give yourself that small space, whether it's, as you say, a walk in nature or 
even like just five minutes away from your phone, just kind of looking at your candle, whatever it is, you know, it's that little kind of white space. I love that, that white space that lives your brain a chance to focus on something else. I, I just think I'm going to, I love that. I think that's so interesting. That quote is so, I love that quote so much. And I think that sometimes for some people, my, myself definitely, so I'll use myself as an example. If we're not listening to our intuition or we're not heeding the message, sometimes those messages can come through our physical body. Mm. And I use that, that quote in relation to physical health, because I've, I've really struggled with, um, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune illness six years ago. And so I've had some some battles with, with my physical health. And I think looking back, that's exactly what was happening. I was not heeding my intuitive messages. I was, I had kind of gone dark on myself a little bit where I was like, I can't even listen right now. And so those, those whispers started to come through my body and I didn't pay attention. And then those whispers slowly became screams in the form of a really serious health condition. And so I think it is, and I I want to just make sure that everybody listening is not hearing me say that if you are struggling with a health condition, you caused it. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But I do think that our bodies try to communicate to us and we're not really great at listening to those those signs and those symptoms. And so there's multiple ways that our our intuition can communicate with us. And for for some of us, we're like more, I don't know, I get a lot of messages through my body. Some of us are, are like, that's how messages come in. Some people are more clear audient, I think it's called. So you, you can like hear, it's like somebody speaking to you or something speaking to you. Some people are more clairvoyant where they see different energy. Um, I, I feel like I'm, I think it's called clairsentient maybe. I feel people's stuff. <laughs> um, so I think that that's an important thing too, is that if there's if there's this repetitive um, message coming through, like whether, you know, through any of those channels, it's really important that you listen to it because your intuition usually doesn't just turn off, right? It's Mm -hmm. going to try to get your attention in there. If it's not, if it's not getting your attention in a gentle way, then it might ramp it up in a different way. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of the work that you do with your clients beyond, you know, what you've said about ditching diet dogma. So, you mentioned that you you have an autoimmune condition yourself and you do work with people who have autoimmune conditions. Talk a little bit about how, because they tend to be more complicated as a practitioner. Talk a little bit about the work that you do um, with those types of conditions and what you've learned perhaps from what you've experienced yourself. So I do a lot of functional medicine work. So it's a lot of lab testing to assess, to get the data to assess for what could be contributing to the overall uh, imbalanced immune system. Um, So I do that. From a food perspective, it's interesting because the functional medicine space loves a good elimination diet, right? (laughs) It is it's restriction. It's a whole new form of restriction where it's not, you're necessarily restricting calories in order to lose weight, but you're restricting food as a safety mechanism to keep yourself safe. So your disease does not, you know, progress, which is equally as stressful. I will say that. So I've found, I've sort of 
found this weird little pocket of the internet where I'm deep in the functional medicine world, but I'm also kind of kicking back against the fact that they prescribe these very restrictive diets as a way to cure or treat an illness. Because what that tells me is that you've, you've taken the humanity out of it. You're not looking at the human. You're looking at the diagnosis and you're saying, here's the template. Here's the protocol. Here's what you do. And you forget that there's a human being sitting on the other end of that. And that human being might have their own restrictive past. You know, that's certainly what happened to me. I had put myself into remission of 13 years of disordered eating. And I was like, I'm living the dream. I'm feeling good. I'm not dieting anymore. I love my body. And then I got smacked upside the head with this really scary diagnosis. And of course, in the blogosphere back then, it was all autoimmune paleo protocol, mm. AIP, which is extremely restrictive. If, if, no, if you haven't heard of it, I, mean, I know that you have, but listeners, you remove all gluten, all dairy, all grains, uh, you remove eggs, you remove all nightshades, you remove all spices that have nightshades, you remove all nuts, you remove all seeds. It's intense. But if you have a doctor saying, hey, this disease could kill you, you're pretty highly motivated to do whatever it takes. Mm. And so a lot of these people are on these really restrictive diets, scared, saying, I have to do this or something really bad could happen. So it creates this safety structure. And I just find that when we take, you know, there's a lot of practicality with, with removing certain foods, for example, you know, with autoimmune illness, like a Hashimoto's, for example, it makes sense. It makes practical sense to remove gluten. Right. But if it, if it crosses over from practicality to restriction, for the sake of like saving my life, there's a whole soup of emotions that go with that. And I just feel like that's kind of where we're missing the mark is that we're not honoring that emotional aspect to these healing therapeutic strategies. And that's kind of where, where I'm at right now in my work is saying like, don't just, don't just slap a template on somebody. Don't just slap a protocol on somebody, treat them like a human being. And you have to work within within their own emotional situation. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. And where's the balance that you find with someone with for, with Hashis, Hashimoto's, thyroiditis, for example, who they you know that they taking gluten out would be beneficial for them based on what you see in their labs, their antibodies, et cetera. But you know that there is a, res- a history of restriction or disordered eating there. How do you find the balance there with that, with a, a, a patient or a client like that? So that's an awesome question. Um, I will say that I have one client right now that um, we just discovered the presence of Hashimoto's antibodies, which explains a lot. We're not just looking at lab data. We're also, we're looking at lab data and saying, does this explain what this human being behind the data is actually experiencing? And in this case, absolutely. So with the Hashimoto's, my, one of my first things is to say, okay, because of the way that gliden, the protein within gluten can cross react with certain tissues in the body, right? We, we want to pull out gluten. But you're saying, okay, that makes sense from a practical standpoint. But what happens if if that doesn't make sense from an emotional standpoint for her? She, her entire world, her entire identity is gluten because her business, 
She's an entrepreneur and her business is making bread. (laughs) So I mean, holy smoke. So it's not the same thing as having a history of, you know, restriction, but this is a big deal, right? So in these cases, what I do is I say, I think this is where it makes sense to invest in doing um, a test. The one that I run is called the Vibrant Wellness uh, Wheat Zoomer from, it's Wheat Zoomer from Vibrant Wellness. And that shows us, is your immune system actually reacting to these peptides within wheat? Because what if the answer is no? And then we just restrict unnecessarily, right? Just based on theory. Um, So for her, for a situation like that, I think it's really makes sense to invest in proper testing to say, you know, is this your bag? Is this something that we have to focus on? And if it is, what the next step is, it's not to just smash her into a gluten-free diet, but it's to assess how does this make you feel? So I just told you that you have, you know, gluten-free diet is a practical way to support your health condition. How does that make you feel? And I'm looking for two things. One, does it feel expansive in your body or does it feel like contraction in your body? Because some people are like, oh my God, I feel so much better knowing this. I've wondered about this. I've thought about this for years. Now I have the data. I feel good. I'm excited to get started. I want to support my body in this way. Like, let's go. And some people get that data and they're like, how am I going to do this? My kids eat gluten. What if I want to go to Italy? Can I never eat pasta again? I can never eat bread again. This, This girl is like, do I quit my business? Like, what do I do? And so we want to, I never want people to make a choice, a decision from a place of constriction and contraction. If it feels hard, scary, rigid, bad, for lack of a better term, in your physical body, that's information. And we're not going to make a decision from that place. We're going to wait. We're going to give ourselves some breathing room. We're going to talk through it. We're going to talk about your biggest fears. We're going to do all of that before we run into this potentially restrictive diet. That is like just like music through my ears because, you know, you, you, we've talked about diet dogma um, and we see a lot in this space. We talked about restriction, but what's interesting is that what you just explained is a very nuanced approach. And that's something that, you know, we've talked about before this lack of nuance and the lack of seeing, even though we we get trained to see the person at, for who they are, the whole whole person, physical and emotional, there is this kind of default of going back to templates and protocol. And this nuance is really important because that's where the healing really begins because you're seeing all elements of the person and what they will actually respond to rather than, take out gluten, take out dairy, you know, take it all out. It's, well, actually, how does this fit into my life and where I'm at emotionally, professionally, personally, all of that. And I think the longer that you do this work and the more people that you work with, and this is why I always want to talk to practitioners, not just researchers, because the research is really important. It's really important, but how that research applies to actual human bodies is the work that I'm most interested in, right? It's it, that is the big stuff. And that's where we learn about the nuance. That's where we learn that context matters is working with lots of people. And that's where we can have compassion for that piece and to say like, I know this is hard. 
I know this is really hard, right? I, I can't tell you how many people have come to me that have been put on like a leaky gut protocol or like a leaky gut diet or a ketogenic diet or, you know, all of these things. And they're, they're pulling their hair out because they're so stressed about it, but they've never had anyone say, does, does this feel manageable for you? Are you okay with this? And what is under discussed because it's not as sexy as diet and it's not as sexy as protocols, but what is under discussed is the role that any type of stressor can have on the gut, on antibody production, on autoimmunity, on any of the things that we're talking about, on food sensitivities even, right? And so if every single time we sit down to our plate to eat, we're locked into this stressed out, hypervigilant state, that's going to impact your physical body too, right? And so we have to make space for all of those things to exist. It is not just as simple as do this diet, all your problems go away. If it was, none of us would have any problems, right? It's not <laughs> that simple. <laughs> Um, I, yeah, I'm just, I'm just nodding my head. I just, I'm just agreeing with everything you're saying. Um, I know that listeners will be connecting with what you're saying. Can you tell them about what you've got coming up in your business, how they can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? I think that the best place to start is with my podcast. I've been podcasting for three and a half years now, and I really um, do a lot to put a, a lot of good information and well-researched and well-thought-out information there. Um, so that's the Functional Nutrition Podcast. That's a really good starting place to just get your feet wet, you know, understand who I am, whether or not we would even be a good fit. Um, and then from there, I run different nutrition programs and then also functional medicine programs. So the next one coming up would be my carb compatibility project, which is going to be in May. And that is a four week process to explore doing a lower carbohydrate template because for some people that can be really health, healthy or, you know, really helpful to manage GI issues or other things that are going on, blood sugar regulation. And so we talk a lot about that, but we do it from a place of compassion. And we also do it from a place of, there's a template, there's a framework, but we do it from a place of accessing your own intuition. So you can keep coming back to your body and saying, but does this work for me? Mm. And every single time you have a question, I'm going to remind you to do that same thing. People are like, but yeah, okay. Okay. I know. I know. I know. You're just going to tell me like, listen to my intuition, but you know, like, <laughs> how many cups of blueberries should I eat in a week? You know, it's like people still, I totally get it. We want the easy answer because it, it, it makes it's less work, but if we choose the path of more resistance, if we choose to like really listen to ourselves and like kind of do the work and, and like what we were talking about, practice that it, it, helps us in so many more ways than just food. Mm. So that is the next thing that I have on the horizon, but um, lots of different programs. And then there's always the option of working with me one-on-one -on -one as well. Great. And all of, all of Erin's links will be in the show notes. So you can check out her website, check out her podcast, her Instagram. Now, if you could leave listeners with one thing, one thought based of, based on all of the amazing things that you've shared on the show today, what would you want that to be? I would say that, and this is right off the cuff, um, I really want people to understand that our bodies are like Wolverine 
my, my daughter and my husband are really into like superhero movies right now and Marvel and all of the things. And my daughter was like, if you could have one, one superpower, what would it be? And I'm like, I would be Wolverine because he has the ability to self heal. And I'm like, I am Wolverine. I do have the ability to self heal. Like our bodies truly, truly do. We've never been taught that we've never been taught that that's an option for us or that's available to us. And because of that, we don't know that it is. And so my mission is to help people understand that we have this innate capacity to heal ourselves. And once we understand that, that it's available to us, we like unlock this massive superpower. Wow. I am just, again, I'm just nodding my head as you're speaking. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Erin. Um, it's been fantastic speaking to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. For more inspiring conversations, head over to periodstorypod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you want help with your menstrual or hormone health, email me on hello at eatlovemove.com to set up a free 30-minute hormone health review. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tag us, come say hi, and send in your requests for who you'd like to see on the show on Instagram and Twitter on at periodstorypod or email us at hello at periodstorypod.com. I'm Lenise Brothers, and you've been listening to Period Story. Thank you so much for listening.